Peter, Jim, Janelle, good to see you all. How are you all doing? How are you holding up? Good. Very good. Good, Ken. I think it's day 654 of the uh, COVID uh, <laughs> pandemic. He says we laugh now until it comes that way, another three months, five months. Anyway, good to see you all. Um, you know, our goal here is to talk about some of the trends in transport technologies. Uh, Peter, I'm going to start with you because you are a Hall of Famer when it comes to transport technologies um, with the work you've done with wireless cameras over the years. And um, you know, I want to kind of start with you as far as an overview of RF and then what you see some of the challenges, because obviously the spectrum situation, uh, not getting any better out there. So kind of give us an update on, on where things stand right now. Well, the way uh, I've always looked at the RF environment that we work in, that there's effectively three different levels. There is uh, a single RF camera uh, that can be used for a news story or a, a sporting event. Uh, then there could be two or three cameras. And then you get to some of the bigger car races or golf where you have 40 systems. And they both take different technologies. Um, the, a lot of the uh, live view or the bonded cellular systems are, are incredible for the single camera situations. Um, for, specifically for news and, and sometimes for sporting events. It's when we start getting up into those 40 plus cameras for the golf and car racing that we start running into issues. <clears throat> and unfortunately, uh, although we think our marketplace is the most important one in the world and the biggest one in the world, it's actually the cell phone systems that uh, dwarf us. Uh, they have all the money and are coming in and buying up all the spectrum. Uh, so uh, as we try to find more spectrum to, to do what we need to do. Uh, we're finding that we have to go higher and higher and higher in spectrum. And one of the issues with that is that now uh, where you may have got away with one or two receive sites, if you're down in the lower spectrum, as you get higher, you have to put more and more received sites out there. So the available money is going down, but the cost of operating is going up. Uh, and that is about the biggest issue we face at the moment. Uh, one of the bigger ones also is for wireless microphones uh, with the repacking of the TV stations. Uh, a lot of the UHF spectrum is going away. Uh, I know the SVG is working with uh, the FCC as well to try and come up with solutions. Uh, but again, uh, we are a, a small little player in that marketplace as opposed to the cell phone companies. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. I know that I guess there's been some recent filings from Shore and Sennheiser on the wireless microphone front, and we will be getting involved with those, helping to support that as best we can. So, so, so as far as the, so then what's the, what's the long-term implication then? Is it gonna get, just get more complicated, more difficult? Um, is there a bigger threat here at all, potentially long-term? Uh, there are ways out of it, uh, but they all cost money, uh, which <laughs> is the problem. So, uh, you know, as the technology is becoming more uh, important or more, um, as digital technology is maturing, uh, that everyone is going over to MIMO style systems, multiple, multiple outputs, which allows the signal to be two-way. Uh, the encoders are becoming more efficient with better quality encoders, and that's reducing the, the bandwidth of the video that you require. Uh, so there are ways out, but uh, as I've heard it described, nothing happens and then it happens all of a sudden. So it's just a very slow transition and then we fall off the cliff and there's a, a brand new technology comes out there, which will help us, I think, uh, move along. Right, right, excellent. So Janelle, I wanted to bring you in here to discuss uh, the Super Bowl. And, um, you know, Peter mentioned some of the smaller systems and the role 
that, um, you know, for these smaller demands. And obviously I think the LU800 is stepping in there, right? With multi-input needs. So can you talk through uh, the, some of the workflows we saw at the Super Bowl, and then maybe yeah. something in some other events in the spring in Florida potentially. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we're seeing obviously a, a large demand for Remy production because having the need to have reduced people on staff is increasing the need to do more stuff from a central location. So we've deployed the LU800 late last year as uh, you know, even you know, we had this in development before COVID hit. So we were sort of thinking about that in terms of. Customers are going into venues that are camera wired into an IO panel. And this is sort of a, a easy solution to just, you know, roll up with a few encoders and be able to produce a game remotely. So the Super Bowl, we had uh, a, a ton of use cases, you know, obviously not the game itself, but all of the stuff leading up to the game and throughout the weekend where they couldn't roll their traditional production truck. Um, they had limited personnel that were allowed to travel because they had to quarantine, you know, two weeks prior to that and that that displaced a lot of key people who do other things in their network. So between Fox Sports, Fox Deportes, they did Remy productions of shows on site. Uh, CBS Sports Interactive exclusively used Live View for all of their digital programming uh, throughout the weekend. And we saw the LU800 used in one location more than we've seen it, you know, anywhere else. So it was uh, a great, you know, sort of us a rewarding thing to see that we knew these, uh, this need would, would be huge and a multi-input single device unit, uh, especially having bonded cellular because connectivity was very much questionable of where you're going to get located, where do you do your studio show? So sort of the, uh, you know, confidence that the network is there uh, when they rolled up. So it was very exciting. And then of course, we've got some big news uh, come spring training. Uh, as you know, many people know, we have uh, done a lot uh, for baseball throughout the season, but spring training is going to be really exciting for us this year um, because we're going to be used more than we've ever been used in the past. So Excellent. more to come. That's great. That's great. So Jim, I want to bring you in here as far as, um, you know, at home productions, obviously, um, you know, they've grown in popularity, no doubt over the last year or two, um, you know, and, and there are issues when it comes to things like, uh, you know, Frame Acker Genlock, Lip Sync, especially because these these productions are getting more complex. So right. can you discuss that for a little bit? And then also, you know, for Peter and Janelle, if you want to chime in as well, but uh, Jim, from your perspective. Yeah, I mean, I mean, to, to Peter's point that, uh, you know, bonded cellular, I'm sure Janelle would agree in the early days, the technology was really meant for news, a single camera, uh, either a, 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 a news talent and a cameraman, or sometimes the talent was the camera operator. Uh, we've come a long way from that. And to Janelle's point, uh, bonded cellular now is really working really well for multi-camera uh, uh, at-home production, Remy production. Uh, we do have devices that have multiple inputs up to four cameras in one appliance. Uh, but where our customers are using our technology is a camera mount unit uh, that are all over the field. Um, you know, they could be all over the golf course, the PGA, the golf channel, NBC are using our tech and the, the cameras are not tethered to a single box. The, the field encoder mounts on the camera and we're able to maintain frame accurate gen lock on mobile portable cameras, uh, similar to an RF workflow uh, that, that BSI would employ. Um, or some of our customers are using a hybrid approach. They may use BSI for the RF to the truck, switch the show in the truck, and then use bonded cellular out of the truck 
but we, we've been promoting for more than five years, even before COVID, uh, the idea of, of fully portable, fully autonomous, uh, portable cameras. We're able to do frame accurate gen lock. So uh, the PGA will deploy on some events up to 12 cameras and we can keep them all in perfect gen lock. They could have 30 microphones open at the same time. And if they were out of sync with each other, uh, the show would be horrible. You know, you in a live event, as we all know, you can't fix timing issues in post-production because there is no post-production. So uh, Vitovation and our partner, Abby West, uh, it's the Safe Streams Transport Protocol that we do a form of precision timing protocol over an unmanaged network to keep all the field encoders in sync, to keep all the cameras in sync. And, uh, you know, Peter said, you know, 40 cameras. We have one customer that deploys uh, 50 cameras. Now, they're not all in the same location. So frame accuracy becomes less important if you're in different venues, different cities. But within a, a given venue, there could be dozens of cameras uh, all shooting the same scene and, and dozens or 30 or 40, 60, 100 microphones all on the same event. And they all have to be uh, in perfect gen lock. And, and we, we help our customers achieve that. Excellent. Great. Peter, Janelle, any thoughts on, on that whole need for, for timing and getting things looking perfect? Yeah. I mean, you can't do a production without the camera signals being in sync. You can't cut to one camera and the other one, they just swing, swing the, the bat. So, you know, LiveView has had our wireless at home production for, you know, six plus years. We cover, you know, most of the American athletic conference games, uh, done Ness and spring training games. We've done off-road rallies and motorsport events and a lot of tier two, tier three sports, you know, polo for Chucker TV. And the, the beauty of the wireless solutions, like what Jim said, is that you don't have to wire cameras to a centralized place because cabling can oftentimes be the most expensive. So, uh, you know, having that uh, ability to be married to a camera operator, whether it's mounted on the camera or in a backpack or however way the configuration works, um, you know, having these synced across all and being able to easily deploy this from any location that the sporting event is at is critical. Um, and of course, bandwidth is, is, is very important. You know, I, I agree that uh, Remy is, has been gaining traction. And then when COVID came along, it just really, really took off. And whether it's done by compressing the video and sending it off on fiber or using your phone system, uh, it certainly is the wave of the future for, the, uh, for some shows. Mm -hmm. So Peter, I want to have you kind of kick off the next section, which is about, um, you know, the impact of cloud-based production, right? So there's people looking at figuring out how do you get signals directly, for, you know, from your systems into the cloud to have them pr produce, you know, have production done there. Um, there's still lots of issues with that happening. And that's even more timing issues, I'm sure. Um, but what, what do you, have you investigated the cloud-based uh, production as far as it relates to where your systems kind of chime in? And then um, to a certain having... extent, uh, I wouldn't actually call it true cloud production, uh, but with a lot of car racing and a lot of golf now, uh, because we use a, a much more uh, regular uh, microwave system, uh, you have to compress the video down, very similar to the cell phone systems, compress the video down, and then we uh, decompress it in our trailer, but we're also sending it out over the internet back to uh, wherever the Remy is being produced, and then we send our uh, decoders out there as well. 
so it, it's not truly a cloud, but it is sent via the internet uh, to aid in the Ruby productions. Right, right. Have you heard any rumblings of things like let's do NASCAR and uh, you know a NASCAR race in four years all on the cloud? Is that on the horizon potentially? I think everyone is always looking for that. Uh, I think, and again, this is just purely my my view on what's going on. That the whole Remy system has to hit that tipping point because at the moment you don't have enough of the staff that it takes to operate the Remy in one specific city. So if you're say using Pittsburgh as your Remy source, you still may have to travel in the TDs, the audio guys, the production people, etc. So you're getting closer, but you aren't quite hitting that financial saving by doing Remy. The big thing right now is COVID and COVID has really pushed the whole Remy thing forward because uh, you, it's, it's cheaper to, or safer to move people to that one location. You can practice social distancing, et cetera, get your show done and do it in a safe, safe manner. Sure. And the goal will be to do it in a cheaper manner. Yes, indeed, indeed. Yeah, Janelle, what's your take on, on cloud-based uh, switching and, and live view? And yeah, I mean, this is a theme of being tools. Um, this is something our customers have certainly been inquiring about uh, the most because as soon as the pandemic hit, it was how do I leverage you know what we have that we can't access right now and what's the alternatives, what's out there? So all of the development in the cloud, I think, got accelerated a lot. And so our response was really building our um, solutions uh, to be sort of agnostic and be able to hit a physical server, a software switcher, uh, a, a something in the cloud hosted by us. And then recently we've we've launched um, selling our essentially our MMH software in the virtual private cloud of somebody's Amazon or Azure stack. So that way you can use utilize tools like VizRT Vector and and you know, SRT or anything like that, where it's within your AWS stack or your, your system, you can lower the latency and leverage NDI in the cloud, which is really, I think the key element here is that you're gonna wanna have extremely high quality and extremely low latency and not, you know, have to sacrifice too much by transitioning into a cloud production environment. And whatever way we can reduce the latency, that's that was our goal. So we built out, you know, a software solution to build into your cloud infrastructure we also uh, enabled our cloud servers and physical servers to stream an RTMP with a timestamp, you know, to go along with having make sure there's frame accuracy, you know, based on any cloud switching platforms, because there's many, right? There's sort of a lower tiered sport that's going to look somewhere in a, you know, sort of budget conscious environment. And then there's the, you know, bigger budget companies are going to look for like Grass Valley Amp and something that's a little bit more robust and turnkey for whatever sporting event they're going to be leveraging. So it's been our goal recently to make sure that when you're using LiveView, it's a seamless integration into whatever cloud environment that you're trying to get to. Sure, sure. So Jim, what's your take on, on, on cloud and how you, your company's evolving around this? Yeah, I mean, to, to, to Janelle's point, uh, um, we're, we're doing uh, virtually identical things. Um, one question we get asked a lot, well, why can't I hook my field encoder uh, directly to vMix or directly to GVM. Um, you know, live use the same way. You, you need to hit either a physical server or, or a software uh, a server in the cloud to put the video back together. You know, bonded cellular, as we all know, 
uh, with our solution, we, we take the video stream and we, we spread it over, you know, eight cellular modems, two LAN connections, Wi-Fi. Uh, the LAN connections could be satellite, they could be fiber, they could be public internet. So uh, Live US is the same thing. We've got to put all those bits back together. So uh, we do the same thing. We, we, the, the Abbey West software is available uh, on a physical server with SDI outputs, but a lot of our customers are not doing traditional broadcast. The major league fishing, uh, it's strictly a, a, a cloud solution. So the, the show is, uh, it's actually switched with a physical uh, production truck, but then it's piped up the cloud, it bonded cellular from the bass fishing boat to a truck on land, then from the truck uh, using bonded cellular technology, well, well, not cellular and public internet to get it up to the cloud. Uh, so so the, 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 the possible combinations of, of how the workflow uh, rolls out, you know, it, it could be fully at home production, it could be all cloud, it could be a hybrid. It really depends on the application. And to Janelle's point, you know, uh, the transport from the field encoder to the decoder or decoding software is usually proprietary. In the case of Abbey West, it's the SafeStreams transporter, SST. LiveView has their protocol. But in order to hook to the rest of the world, we support NDI, we support SRT, we can do an RTMP. Um, uh, one important thing in our software is transcoding. Not every platform now supports H.264, H.265 or HEVC. So we may come into our receiving software, our receipt or our physical receiver, but then uh, Facebook doesn't want HEVC right now. They, they still want 264 or they want a certain bit rate or they want constant bit rate, not variable bit rate. So we, we transcode. So those little extra things of transcoding and changing the, the transport protocol to make it compatible with, with all the different flavors of cloud uh, vendors uh, to, to maximize interoperability. Excellent, great. So Peter, I wanted to bring you in to discuss, um, to kick off the next segment, which will be about control of signals, um, camera parameters. Um, I know looking at the RF, the developments over the years, um, as far as the level of control that you have of these remote camera systems has, has been always, I mean, that's been job one for you clearly. So what's going on as far as the evolution of, of just making sure that um, you know there is more control remotely of these systems, um, so that people back at the head end can really can dial in, you know, uh, color and and make sure video shading is proper, all that kind of stuff. As as I mentioned a bit earlier, that uh, the bi-directionality of the microwave systems now are really really starting to take off, which is great. Uh, you know, one of the big things all along has been to get the cameraman uh, program video. So especially with the the graphic heavy shows that are out there now, they need to be able to see where all the graphics are so they can frame the shot properly. Uh, so with the, the bi-directionality now, you can get uh, program video back very easily. Uh, you can even get the intercom back if you want to go that path. Uh, but more importantly, you can do the full uh, CCU control of the camera, uh, which is very critical with the way they're all going together now. Uh, in the you know, historically, we've used a UHF signal for both the communications uh, and the data. And just by putting in a, a, a specific code per camera, you could run 20, 30, 40 cameras off a single UHF uh, control channel. But uh, with the bi-directionality, all that's becoming a fairly simple 
system now. Excellent. Great. Janelle, from the live view perspective, camera control and all that good stuff. Yeah. So basically we've seen this ask a lot recently um, and our units have always been transmitting video uh, back to a control room environment. That was the traditional use case. But now that the deployment of PTZ cameras with golf looking to do, you know, <clears throat> auto iris and camera shading, there's a need for a secondary point-to-point uh, -point data connection to do some of this, control some of this IP equipment that's out in the field. So we rolled out a new feature called IP pipe, which is essentially a layer two connection between your field devices and your server. And the intention is really to be able to control cameras remotely and not necessarily need to have someone there. So with a PTZ camera, you can set it up, forget it. You don't have to go through the VLAN complications of creating, you know, with whatever customer's network is available at that time to be able to control that camera. You cook, hook it into the unit with an SDI path and be able to control. And the same goes with, you know, other IP, you know, infrastructure like comms, low, low bandwidth comms and that sort of thing. So uh, we're seeing it uh, used a lot in golf, uh, especially because that's a big need for camera shading for some of our customers. Um, who, you know, they're sunrises and they need to be able to fix this, the, the lighting and the coloring. So um, it's been a huge uh, help with customers and, and being able to solve for that, that need. Excellent. And Jim? Yeah, uh, to Janelle and, and Peter's point, that, that is a, a big challenge. Um, um, some of our customers, they may deploy a smaller truck and choose to do shading on site. Um, and then in those applications, uh, we might use uh, our partner, uh, AB on Air. They have a, a microwave solution that does uh, uh, a high-res video, 4K video now, camera control, intercom, and seven milliseconds of latency. So it's like half a frame or subframe latency. Um, live view, uh, Avi West, you, you know, I, half a second is like the lowest latency we can do. Um, I've done a little amateur video engineering myself, but I volunteer at the local church and even the, even the slightest bit of latency, it's very hard to shade a camera. You know, if, if the video is arriving in, in what the truck or master control or the cloud, whatever the workflow is, if the video is already a half a second old, the camera may have already moved to a shadow and now you're, you're opening the iris and, you know, so you're following it. So uh, there can be challenges. Uh, uh, so we have a microwave solution that addresses that, but you know, that's meant more for having a truck on site with the bonded cellular approach. We have a data bridge function in the Abbey West technology, similar to what Janelle was speaking about. Uh, we've had that for quite some time. But some camera control systems don't like more than, you know, 10 or 20 milliseconds of latency. They time out something hiccups, um, even some, a few drop packets, let's say. Um, so we've partnered with a company that specializes in IP camera control, uh, particularly for specialty cameras, but they work with the big cameras too. You know, your Grass Valleys, your Panasonic's and your Sony's. And uh, the company is CyanView. And, and what CyanView does is you have your CCU, your controller in the control room, but then there's a little box on the camera that emulates the, the controller. So if the connection is interrupted or there's too much latency between the real physical controller that the video engineer is controlling and this pseudo controller on the camera, 
What it does is it keeps the camera happy. The camera thinks it's connected all the time. So the, 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 the real physical controller talks to the little box and, and keeps everything happy. So if there is a little bit of a hiccup, it smooths that out. And the tech really works well over an unmanaged network like the public internet or cellular, or you could use it over an RF link if, if you don't have camera control integrated in your RF link, you could do a, a data RF connection and use it, use it that way. So that's some of the things we're rolling out to some of our customers, helping them with this camera control and shading issue. So Jim, I know you wanted to talk about the um, analog audio inputs and how they kind of fit into the bonded cellular yes. field encoders. Yes. So yes. Walk us through so, that issue. Yeah. So, so our, our partner, Abby West, has always had uh, the feature of, of uh, analog audio inputs. So, uh, you know, most field encoders will take audio from the camera. So uh, uh, whether it's two audios, four audios, et cetera. Uh, what Avi West does is it allows you to take maybe audio number one and two from the camera and then feed analog audio inputs to three and four. If the camera has analog audio inputs on it, of course you can do it that way. So if, if an operator has a bigger camera that has maybe internal microphones and then maybe two uh, audio inputs, maybe one for a shotgun mic, and then you could plug your lapel mic from your talent into that into the third or the fourth audio channel. If you have a smaller camera, there's a lot of productions now, they're shooting stuff with SLRs, so you don't have audio input. So you have the audio input on the um, on the field encoder. I, I mean, I think of myself as a video guy, but we all know that for every, every camera video feed, there could be four, eight, 12, 16 channels of audio uh, for every video, that there's far more audio than there is, there is uh, video. So what some of our customers are doing, like, like the PGA, for the PGA Tour, is they'll, they'll use our, our, the flagship unit and mount it on the camera, and then they come in on the audio, uh, analog audio inputs, uh, they'll feed, uh, the commentator is, is on the course, so they'll have a lapel receiver for commentator going in channel three, uh, you know, on here. Then the, one of the golfers has a microphone on, uh, that'll be going in channel four. Um, some customers are very savvy where, because the camera operators will rotate, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll move around. So what happens is the camera operator moves away from the commentator. So you could have multiple receivers for each lapel mic on the course or on the production. So the, the, the microphone will jump to whatever one is closest by. Like live PD, police officers driving the car, lapel receivers in the back seat or in the trunk. But then he gets out of the car now his lapel jumps to the photographer following him on this. Um, then, you know, we all learn from our customers, right? So <laughs> we learned the importance of analog audio from the PGA. The, apparently the top trace, the, the, the red line that follows the ball going through the air, that telemetry goes through an audio channel. I didn't know this to the PGA. So they're like, oh, wow, that's really cool. We, now we just plug the, the top trace telemetry in here and it goes through the, the analog channel. Then the PGA was like, well, you know, we could rent more of these, but we don't need video. We just need audio. So it's kind of overkill. So the PGA rents the smaller unit. Instead of eight modems, it has two modems. And they use the analog audios on this for like parabolic microphones uh, to get, you know, uh, uh, audio shot, you know, um, 
audio uh, from afar. Um, so a combination of the technology, uh, having those analog inputs, you know, I, I'm sure any customers listening is like, hey, I, I just thought of a new way to use those audio inputs for something. So uh, uh, hopefully I'll learn something new, a new application. Oh, excellent. So Peter and Janelle, Peter, um, you know, where, where do you, obviously, it's funny because when you look at the evolution of, of you know, the, some of the shots you've done in NASCAR, the coolest thing was when the audio got added, right? And you go all of a sudden talk to the drivers and things like that. So it is always, it's interesting as much as we love the video and the video images, audio sent, tend, that, connect, that communication tends to, tend to be one of the cooler things when it happens. So what's your sense on, on um, you know, what Jim was just talking about as far as audio and the future of, of uh, audio within RF and, and what you're working on? Well, specifically, as we were saying earlier, with the uh, uh, compacting of the UHF TV transmitters, uh, the actual <laughs> spectrum that was used for wireless mics is diminishing. Uh, and unfortunately, it's becoming more and more critical for the show because we, we always joke that it's very easy to get the video out, but the audio is always the hardest part, which requires the most amount of work. So whatever you can do to simplify that process and and get the audio out quickly is critical and uh, it's becoming more and more difficult as time goes by just because this when you look at the number of wireless mics that are out there between all the uh the local churches and the conference rooms and all that sort of stuff uh, just a tremendous amount of equipment and uh, the spectrum is getting depending on the city that you're in it's becoming less and less and less Sure, sure. So Janelle, I know the ALU 800 has a has a bunch of audio channels on it, um, I guess, to meet these needs as well. Yeah, yeah. when I came on three years ago and I started the sports segment of Live View, it was, we can only, we need to support more embedded audio channels. Like that's, you know, we're being used and being asked to use as a backup to satellite, sometimes the primary on the linear broadcast channels and audio channel support is critical to that. So our LU800 can now support up to 16 embedded audio channels. Obviously you double up more LU800, you can support more audio channels. So, you know, it depends on the sport, what you're doing, uh, what the need really is. Um, golf is very unique, but most sports, you know, they are looking to say, hey, are we mixing on site? Are we mixing remote? And what can your encoders do to support? So I think we're sort of unique in the market in that, you know, the Remy productions, we really meet every different kind of sport from in-car cameras with NASCAR stuff and, and the G1 series with an LU300, because you can get that in there and loop in a camera and be able to get that in-car audio into your production environment um, that gives fans like the, you know, the, they get excited with the noise. There's no NASCAR without noise. <laughs> right, exactly. um, so that was a big one. And then obviously regional sports networks, they're producing more at-home production high school sporting events um, in their given region. So the ability to sort of take as much of that stuff as a Remy, in, including, you know, doing audio mixing and wiring that into a uh, your at-home production setup is is critical. So it's cool to see us uh, up our audio game in, that, in live view um, and all the bonded cellular companies uh, starting to follow suit. Right, excellent, great. So, we, you know, we can't have a conversation about signal transport without talking about 5G, just because mm -hmm. it's everybody thinks it's gonna solve every problem in the whole entire world. We heard it mentioned at the Super Bowl yesterday. So, um, you know, Peter, what's your take? All three of you can chime in on, on what your senses of 5G it's a role in the industry, uh, myth versus reality. I'll, I'll start off with it, that 5G is really a set of rules and it's how you implement those set of rules to get the product. 
but people generically just say, oh, 5G, and you're right, it's going to solve absolutely everything. The way I've always looked at this is back in the days of NTSC. Now, NTSC could be a VHS tape that your kids have watched 100 times, and then it could be a three-quarter-inch machine, it could be a two-inch machine, it could be all the way up to a digibeta. They all put out NTSC, but you look at the range of qualities you're talking about from the, the VHS up to the digibeta. And it's the same with 5G, that it depends on the, the frequency of the implementation and the width of the channel that you can actually have available, which allows the numbers of zeros and ones to get through. So when everyone says about 5G, it's like, oh my God, you can do you know, megabits of data, gigabits of data through. That is true if you're up around 70 gig. And the downside of 70 gig is now, instead of having a cell tower every few miles, you're gonna to have to have it every block. <laughs> and it is, it, so it is economically good to put that in New York City. It's not economically good to put it in Martinsville, Virginia. Right. So there has to be the sorting out of what the spectrum is that they're going to be implementing 5G in. And at the moment, everyone says, oh, it's gonna change the sporting experience. And yes, it is. It's gonna change the sporting experience in the download speed. So that's if you're sitting there in the stands, you can get out your phone and you can look at the game being played in somewhere else or whatever you want to do. What they're not really throwing the money into at the moment is the upload speed. And in our specific world, you're going to need more and more upload speed uh, to, to do what you need to do. Now, I know sports uh, venues are getting a lot more interesting with their Wi-Fi, that they have very narrow antennas that point down that'll only hit up to five rows of seats at a time, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but one of the issues we're running into whenever we use a, a bonded cellular style of system, and, and again, it'll work great in 99% of the venues you're going to go to, but you go down to the perfect one, Charlotte Motor Speedway. You get 180,000 people in the stands, and they all have one of these things. Uh, and it, it really causes a lot of issues with the spectrum availability. Uh, so as you're doing these more and more and more critical shows, you need to have control over the spectrum that you're using to make sure you can get the video through. So you know, 5G, uh, we have this constant battle at work that people are saying, you know, in 10 years time, we'll just be writing T-Mobile a check and we'll be using all their spectrum. We may get to that point, um, as we as I said earlier. In, in our industry, we don't have the financial backing to go and fight the, the big cell phone companies. So, uh, you know, if they take it all over, that's what we're going to have to do. But uh, in the the foreseeable future, we do like having control over the spectrum that we have. Great, Janelle. From your perspective, I'm sure you must get this question all the time. Right? Oh yeah, <laughs> I mean we're following the carriers uh, closely with their 5G network rollouts. I mean specifically to what our units will be compatible with right out the gate is all the sub six 5G networks that are continuing to be rolled out, which is a more you know uh, less of a need for these short uh, cell tower locations, but there's still a need, right? So. Um, I think that the 5G uh, upload speed is a great point that Peter made. It's not something that we, is talked about, but it is, it is something that they're so focused on download speeds because it's a consumer driven deployment. It's not right. a you know, business to business business you know, driven deployment. So we're definitely gonna see that. And I think having bonded cellular as 
you, how you're using the 5G network is even more critical because you're going to get better latency. You're going to get a little bit better bandwidth upload speeds, and it's going to allow you to do stuff. Um, I mean, people are already seeing, even with LTE and 4G, that you started using your cellular bonding units more frequently, especially when HEVC rolled out. Um, you know, it's 60% of the bandwidth needed for the same video quality. So now you're going to see customers using us with HDR, uh, with 4K, um, higher quality stuff, and they're going to be riding more on this connection, right? Because really right now you're looking at a video transmission, but you're also looking at a data connection as well alongside it. So you're going to see more tools being utilized remotely over IP and the public internet. Um, so I think that the, you know, we're going to have less concern over what's the bandwidth condition of a given location and think more about what softwares can we now deploy? What kind of tools can we start building that leverages and takes advantage of this new, uh, you know, connectivity that we live in, in the air? Excellent, excellent. Jim, what's your take on, yeah, on 5G? Yeah, yeah, to Janelle's point that uh, <clears throat> what we're, what's out there today is sub uh, six gigahertz. Um, so uh, everything Peter and Janelle have said that, that it, they're concentrated on the download. We all need the upload for production. Uh, we're working right now with several of the carriers. We're under NDA um, doing some tests with their millimeter wave uh, 5G connectivity. And uh, I'm sure Janelle gets asked this every day. Well, what, what do I need bonded cellular? 5G is going to solve all our problems. Same thing Peter said. Uh, I, I'm, I don't need you. I don't need you. But the 5G is either going to be uh, more limited in range. Um, um, I live in Southern California. They are always adding lanes to the highway. <laughs> and the second they open the lane up, it's just as congested. So just because they're opening up more lanes, more bandwidth on the cellular, it's going to be gobbled up by consumers, and then we're going to be left with the crumbs. <laughs> but the carriers are talking about giving us broadcasters a service level agreement or dedicated bandwidth or a slice of the bandwidth. Uh, so, so, and then to Peter's point, the, the millimeter wave stuff, the ultra uh, uh, short wavelength, um, you know, we, we, we designed and, and fabricated the, uh, the early in-net goal cameras for the NHL using 60 gigahertz technology. So we know it very well here at Vitovation, and it's extremely, extremely directional. Um, now, there's techniques in the millimeter wave where uh, phase array, where, where there's beam steering, so the, the bandwidth will be even targeted. You mentioned, Peter, you know, with Wi-Fi targeting a couple of rows in the venue, there's even tech where you can get it to the person with beam steering. So there's a lot of cool stuff coming down the pipe. Uh, but today, one of the big uh, differentiators with Abbey West is they make sure that when a new band comes out, when, when a carrier cuts a deal with the FCC or they buy Spectrum, uh, Abbey West makes sure we can see those bands. So uh, uh, nine times out of 10 in, in uh, I don't know about that specific uh, uh, NASCAR racing venue you talked about, Peter. Um, I, I'm not sure, uh, but if there's cellular available, even a, a whiff of it, uh, the Abbey West tech has a tendency to grab it, but we can't make a connection out of thin air. We don't have a magic wand. I'm sure, Janelle, do you have a magic wand where you can make cellular, a cellular tower appear in the middle of a football stadium? Or, yeah. so, I like to pretend uh, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, um, 
But um, I don't think we're out of a job quite yet, Janelle and Peter. I think <laughs> I think we're, we're, we're not knock on wood. I think I think we're OK. Uh, our customers are still going to need our help. Sure. sure. So last question, looking to the future, um, you know, hopefully we're going to have more 4K, more HDR. Um, Peter, what's your sense as far as um, the capabilities and the available bandwidth and spectrum for, you know, a, a really massive 4K HDR show? Are you feeling in a good space? Will that be a challenge? Um, it, it's uh, it's certainly doable. Uh, it's just, as we said earlier, it's going to cost a lot of money to do it. Uh, <laughs> we have to go much higher in frequencies. We have to put in a lot more receive sites. So the operational expense is going to be considerably different. Either that or we write uh, AT&T a huge check to use their systems. So uh, it's not going to get cheaper. Uh, it's just going to cost more money. Uh, but uh, the capabilities are out there. It's just we just need the marketplace to push us in that direction to say this is what we need. Right, gotcha. Janelle, you mentioned uh, 4K a little bit earlier. Yeah, so our units have, have been able to support 4K uh, for a number of years, and the LU800 specifically supports 10-bit uh, HDR, uh, which has become, I think, more of the demand uh, recently than 4K, um, especially if you're considering telemetry and, and how you're producing the event, if you're producing an HDR. Um, having a transmission solution that supports 10-bit HDR is critical, and, and we've already seen it being out in the marketplace now for a few months, and I, I only imagine it's increasing. I mean, we've got a really cool uh, use case coming on for, for uh, baseball for the Red Sox, you know, with their sharing of a feed. They're going to have a live view unit in LU800 that's going to bring in a 4K for their own game production uh, in addition to what the uh, local uh, producer is producing. So, um, you can certainly see it in the video quality with HDR, 4K. I mean, it depends. <laughs> I yeah. think we're all looking at the 8K camera for the Super Bowl game and trying to figure out what was being, what was the difference. Um, but I think HDR is going to be the real critical element. Excellent. And Jim, take us home. Let's take on. Yeah. So uh, our partner Abby West in their their HE series, they have a uh, 4K, uh, 422 10-bit HDR solution. Um, we like to think, or our customers tell us, that uh, uh, our flavor of HEVC uh, makes beautiful pictures. Um, um, some of our customers are, are, are seeing a 30% savings uh, due to extra efficiencies in our HEVC uh, a codec. Um, in a fiber connection, is a 30% data savings a big deal? Probably not. You're not, you're not your bandwidth may not be metered. But in the cellular world, you know, every every kilobit, every megabit, every gigabit, uh, there's a cost associated with that. So if you can make uh, beautiful pictures in HEVC 4K, but also be efficient at it, that that's that's very important. That can be important. Excellent, great. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Good to see you all. Um, glad everybody's doing well. So. Hopefully we're all vaccinated by the time we next see each other. So that's the key. Exactly. Right? Hopefully. <laughs> right. Thanks. Thanks, Thanks again. Thanks for having us. Thanks, everyone. Thanks everybody. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Stay safe.